I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From PRX, it's... Recorded in front of a live audience from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with writer Jamie Attenberg, podcaster James Kim, and chef Bonnie Morales with music from Federale and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Lou. Thank you, Elena Passarello, and thank you, everybody, for coming out to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We have a really fun show in store for you this week. The theme that we picked is All in the Family, which relates to all of our guests in in one way or another. Uh, We asked the crowd here, as we uh, usually do, to fill out a little kind of questionnaire. And the question we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater this week was, describe your family crest. Yes. You know, family crest is like sort of a Scottish thing, kind of an old world thing. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be these, these images that represent like what your family is sort right. of all about. So like if your family was fighting another family, that's mm-hmm. what would be on its like shield. Right. Right. Like exactly. it's your, your, your fighting flag kind of a thing. Uh, I don't really come from a family that would have had a family crest. Uh, I was thinking about this today. If we had one, it would probably be more like emoji based. Oh. <laughs> Because all of our family conversations unfold in a text chain dedicated to the Seattle Seahawks called Hawk Squad. That's where every important piece of family information is disseminated. So I think our family crest would be like a heart emoji. Okay. Because a very loving family. I'm one of seven kids. We're super... Just, like, sweet to each other, very uncritical. It's a very loving environment. That sounds amazing. The other part of the crest, though, would be the guy shrugging his shoulders (laughs) emoji. Because my family is very loving and supportive, but also we are not good at showing up. Showing up. Like, like physically going to do things for or with each other. Okay. The story that I, I tell often on this show 
And I know I've told it a lot, but I'm going to stop telling it when it stops hurting. And that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> because of working in radio some years ago, I got a chance to throw out the first pitch at a Major League Baseball game. Wow. And was very excited. And my mom and I, uh, we always loved baseball together. We would throw the ball in the yard and stuff. My mom's a big baseball fan. And um, she uh, let me know that she was probably not going to be able to make it because at the time she worked at Costco selling samples. Oh, my God. And she was on the pierogi station. <gasps> and she said, it's a real nightmare to break that thing down. I don't think I'm going to be able to make the ferry <laughs> to get over to see. And I was like, maybe somebody could cover for you. Did you ask Carla? <laughs> she did come to the game. So that, that worked out. But that's like my family is, is very... Uh, loving and supportive as long as they don't have to do anything. <laughs> what about your family, Crest, Elena? What would it be? So I, I wanted to use this audience card question as a test okay. for my partner of right. 17 years. I feel like I'm sort of the holder of the lore. Like I'm the one who always kind of like tells the stories of our relationship or whatever. So I texted him, what would our crest be? Okay. The Turcarellos. Uh-huh. Uh, his last name is Turkello. My last name is Passarello. And this is what he said. So uh, it's this cat, the best cat we ever had, R.A.P. Sharky, Sharky Passarello. Oh. We called him Cat Fonzie. So it's Sharky, uh, this black and white cat with a pencil in one paw, because we're both writers, and a highball of rye whiskey in the other with a ham biscuit floating over his head like a halo, because it's southern, huh. and then it's all on fire. That's <laughs> and you know what? He wins. Like that's how I would represent you our relationship what? in pictorial form. I am gonna embroider that for you <gasps> for Christmas. Oh my god. As soon as I learn how to embroider. Okay. <laughs> what is the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater saying would be on their family crest? These are pretty great. Here's one from Fam Demort. Fam Demort's family crest would be a 404 family not found error page. Oh <laughs> no. Uh, here's one from Anne, Anne's family crest, three Catholics sitting at a bar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know that one. This is Live Wire Radio. Our theme this week is All in the Family, which is perfect because we've got somebody just off stage who has created this amazing new fictional podcast, which is based on a lot of elements of his real-life family. It's called Moonface. It's available now. Please welcome James Kim to Livewire. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, this new podcast, yours, Moonface, is really incredible. How did you get the idea for it? Yeah, I um, I used to work in a uh, entertainment show uh, for public radio, and. I did a lot of interviews with a lot of celebrities who are minorities. I was just ended up being that guy interviewing <laughs> those people. Uh, I wonder why. And, um, you know, with every single interview, everybody was telling me how difficult it was to get their story told um, and how everyone was saying, no, they can't relate to these stories. And here I saw podcasting, especially fiction podcasts, like an, as an outlet to tell these stories from marginalized communities and really kind of um, produce it in a way that's independent and it's cheap. You could set it on the moon. You could set it in a classroom. You could set it here in this theater and it'd be the same budget. So I kind of was really inspired by the idea that there was just really not a lot of stories about Asian Americans and I just wanted to do something for uh, the Asian American community. Um, 
one of the really interesting elements of the of, of Moonface is okay. So it's the story of this guy, Paul. Yeah. And he is trying to figure out how to come out to his mother, who's Korean American. Um, but she doesn't speak uh, a lot of English, and he doesn't speak a lot of Korean, and that creates uh, uh, some real challenges. Yeah. Now, you are Korean American, gay man, whose mother, I understand, does not speak a lot of English, and you do not speak a lot of <laughs> Korean. Are these in any way related? <laughs> no, totally not. No. Okay. <laughs> On to my next question. Yeah, exactly. No, but I, I guess here, yeah, yeah, my, yeah. my first question about this is really um, kind of practical, uh, which is how did this develop that you and your mom don't really share the same language? Yeah, when I was growing up, I, uh, I spoke Korean fluently, apparently. There's even like a home video that my parents would show me and be like, look how good you used to sound. Oh, and, like man. shame me a bit, which kind of sucked. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, growing up, they really wanted me to assimilate. And so uh, they stopped taking me to Korean classes and just basically, we're like, just learn English, and eventually you'll you'll learn the language um, back again. And that never happened. Um, and so it caused this kind of tear in our relationship where I don't really speak to my mom. Um, you know, it's all surface level. It's about like, you know, how's your day going? Or does this food taste good? And then that's completely it. Um, so yeah, it, it was something where, you know, I used to speak it well, and then, um, you know, got to the point where I needed to come out to my mom and I didn't know how to do it because I didn't know the words to say I'm gay in Korean. And yeah, but in the end, I just kind of was like, I'm gay. And she kind of got exactly what I was saying. Like, I'm sure she's walked in on me watching porn and she saw what was on the screen. So, <laughs> and that really is, let's be honest, the you international know. language. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, but uh, but yeah, everything is good now. I mean, I, I'm learning Korean and she's trying to learn English and, and we're trying to get our relationship back on track. Uh, one of the things that you did with this show, though, by the way, we're talking to James Kim, this podcast is called Moonface, um, is the the mother character speaks Korean and it's not translated. What were you hoping to accomplish with that? Yeah, I really wanted the audience and the listeners to experience exactly what the main character was feeling um, at the time. And to do that and to not have any translation, I thought was the best way to do it. If especially putting everyone on his shoes when she's saying stuff and he's completely confused, it really makes the audience relate to that character. Um, so I, and, and two, I just, uh, I didn't want any narration either. I didn't want to over explain cause that's like a big issue in public radio. I've been in public radio <laughs> all my life and there's so much over explanation and I, I didn't want any of that. I wanted this to be subtle and ultimately I wanted it to be like an awkward, honest kind of experience. Yeah, that's one thing that I noticed when I was listening to it. My ear is so trained to listen to podcasts to have them be very wordy, right? Yeah. And it's so quiet in a way. There, there are these moments of great silence. If people are going to walk to the door, you just you don't even hear sometimes footsteps. There's just these wonderful sort of pauses, and or they go to dance, and you don't you don't really hear that much. Was that a reactive goal, just to like not just to take the narration out, but to make it as quiet? as possible? Yeah, some of my favorite um, films and media and television shows are when they have these long, long, long pauses. Um, it's a weird example, but it's a movie called It Follows, mm -hmm. and it's oh, a yeah. horror movie. It's so incredible, but there's not a lot of dialogue in the movie, and they build these atmospheric, emotional moments just by using sound design, and so I kind of want to mimic that. Like, uh -huh. I, I really wanted to make a fiction podcast that was utilizing audio to the fullest, so it's crazy that you, like, 
caught all those silences because in when we recorded the actors, like they were just going through the lines like crazy. So in post-production, it was just like we we had some moments where it was like 15, 20 seconds of silence. And the sound designer I was working with, he was like, you're absolutely insane. I was like, no, 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 this is going to be brilliant. And um, <laughs> and I'm going to, I don't know, maybe it paid off, who knows? <laughs> I was listening to a lot of this while I was driving. And I would find myself just kind of like almost lost in my own thoughts in the moments yeah. between what the characters are doing on Moonface. Yeah. It's like white space on the page or something. Yeah. Like it's just this this moment where you kind of check in with yourself as a par participant in the storytelling. Yeah, and I've always noticed too, yeah, exactly. Like I've, I've noticed when I'm listening to something and uh, there's a lot of talking or there's like a lot, like if like a Radio Lab episode, there's just like a lot of things happening. And um, I wanted, like, I've noticed any time that they use silence, all of a sudden you're really paying attention. Yeah. And whatever happens before and after that silence, it's like you're, you're holding on to those words, those sounds, or whatever's happening. So I just wanted to have as many of those moments where it's like there's so much silence in there that you're always constantly actively listening. All right, we got to take a quick break. This is Livewire from PRX. We're talking to podcaster James Kim. His podcast is Moonface. Don't go anywhere. Hey, have you subscribed to the Livewire newsletter yet? Every week we share live show dates there as well as peeks from behind the scenes at each episode. The newsletter is also a great way to be part of our engaged community of listeners. You can discover acclaimed authors and thinkers, hilarious stand-up comedy, and of course, live musical acts. You can subscribe today by clicking on Stay Informed over at LiveWireRadio.org. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We're talking to James Kim about his new podcast, Moonface. Um, one of the uh, uh, things that is discussed uh, in the podcast is this Korean term, Han. Can you kind of explain what that is and, and what role it plays in, the, in Moonface? Yeah, I discovered this term a couple years ago, and it was an article. I don't remember who wrote it, but it was titled Kimchi Rage. And I was like, whoa, that's racist. And then when I was reading it, um, <laughs> I was like, oh, no, like, I totally understand this. And, and it, you know, it was written by a Korean person, too. So I was like, all right. But... Um, <laughs> It's, it's this thing where, um, you know, South Koreans have been through a lot. They've been through Japanese colonization and they've been through, you know, what happened with the DMZ and especially what's happening now in North Korea, that they've internalized a lot of these emotions and they, they kind of believe that these emotions that they haven't let out, this anger, this depression, this sadness has been passed down through generation and generation and has caused this... I don't know, like a really bubbling emotion that they can't control. And then all of a sudden it would just burst. Um, so like someone showed me like there's like a video, uh, a YouTube video of like two Korean people who were, who were in traffic and one of them gets out of their car, starts screaming. The other one gets out of the car, starts screaming and they get into a fist fight. And like that's kimchi rage. It's like when they take an ordinary scenario that can be de-escalated just by words that, that it just escalates really quickly. And, um, and it, it all stems from this idea that, that Koreans haven't had an outlet to let all these emotions out. It's something that I feel like a lot of like second generation Koreans like me have been, we've been more open about discussing our feelings. Like my, my parents' generation, they do not talk about their feelings at all. I remember when I was a little kid, 
my dad came up to me. Something happened in my family, and it must have been bad because he came to me and he was like, don't ever tell anybody about this. You always keep this drama in the family. Just keep it to yourself. And, you know, now growing up with... Uh, Boy, did you ever not do that. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just laid like it Like you literally there. are broadcasting. Just, yeah, <laughs> every single thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, exactly. Like things like making this podcast and seeing other people like Andrew On, he's a film director um, based in L.A. and did a, 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 a story about a Korean-American coming out to his parents too and seeing a lot of these Korean Americans like talking about their feelings and making art about their feelings I feel like that's been kind of a, a counter movement to what our parents generations has been which is like shut down completely has your mom heard the podcast no she has not she actually doesn't even know what I do I even remember when I got like a new job in podcasting she's like I don't know what that is, but great, yeah. So, yeah, she totally, she has no idea what a podcast is, and, like, I'm going to keep it that way. There's so many things that uh, are super personal. I mean, you both heard it. It starts at a sex club, and I would rather not have my mom listen to a character based on me having an orgasm. Kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the right call. Yeah, right. <laughs> 100%. All right, James, I feel even though Moonface is fictionalized, uh, if, if folks listen to it, they learn a lot about you, as we've established. Uh, but we want the Livewire audience to get a better sense of kind of what makes you tick. And so to that end, uh, here on stage, we've got a physical jar on the desk. It has the five essential questions of our time in it. We call this exercise the jar of truth. Here's how this is going to work. Oh, man. Uh, James will have you pull a question at random from the Jar of Truth. Elena Passarella will read you the question, and then we'd like to get your uh, truthful answer to one of the five essential questions of our time. Man, can I just do a dare instead? <laughs> okay. If you look great and your friend looks terrible, is it ethical to post the photo online? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's the <laughs> That's on them. That's their fault. I'm really? Sorry. Oh, yeah, totally. If you're looking good and it's just like, I don't know. I've had that done to me before and I just didn't care. And I'm just huh. like, you know what? I'm just going to. And then I ended up doing it to someone else and um, they're mad about it. But I was just like, too bad. Sorry. I don't know if that's. Yeah. I feel like I'm learning something here uh, from you, James. Uh, let's do another question. All right. Can you refer to multiple people as your best friend? <laughs> this sucks that I have to answer this one uh, because my my um, best friends don't know that there's multiple best friends in my circle. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and um, I guess they do now. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, yeah I have like about four or five best friends. I have uh, probably a couple people in my life who I would depending on the day, consider my best friend. But I don't think I've ever said to them, you are my best friend. Really? Like, yeah. You never told anyone that, that, that you know, they're the... I mean, not since, like, seventh grade. Oh, is this... Oh. <laughs> but I don't, I'm not, I don't think there's anything juvenile about it. I think there's something in me that feels like that's too intense to say to one of my friends. Maybe it's too much pressure, or maybe I don't want to be locked into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you yeah. actually tell your, yeah. like, friends, hey, you're my best friend. Yeah, I feel like I'm, like, uh, polyamorous when it comes to best friends. You know, <laughs> like, multiple best friends. Because best friend 
indicates it's a superlative that that's the one best friend. Yeah, I feel like that's the same with like monogamy, right? It's like if you believe in monogamy, then it's like that one true love, and and, not, and I just don't. So I feel like yeah, I, I think it's totally okay about having multiple best friends. You can make that deep connection with multiple people. Well, James, now uh, we have your mom, who you don't want to hear the podcast, and your four to eight best friends, who <laughs> you don't want to hear this radio broadcast. You got a lot of secrets, brother. A lot yeah. of secrets. Yeah. James Kim, everybody. The podcast is Moonface. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines offers one more taste of summer. With nonstop flights from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Aloha, Alaska. More at alaskaair.com. Hey there, it's Luke. Stay with us because coming up, we've got best selling author Jamie Attenberg, who says she writes about families because it's a way to explore a whole range of topics. The fascinating thing about families is you can't choose any of these people, so they've just become really rich territory. It just makes it really easy to write about America, too, because that you can have all different kinds of politics and ethics and things like that because everyone's just sort of thrown together in this family. That's coming up very soon here on LiveWire. This is LiveWire Radio. Our theme this week is all in the family, and we ask the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater... Uh, to fill out a little card and tell us what their family crest would be. What are they telling you, Elena? Here's one from Robert. A pile of clean laundry and a pile of dirty laundry indistinguishable from each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know that move. Laundry mountain. A majestic laundry mountain. Well, there's this point at which, like, you do a bunch of laundry and you have a pile of clean clothes. Mm -hmm. Could be on a couch. Could be on a Peloton bike. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they were made for. I mean, I think most people know that. Yeah. Could be on the bed. And then you, you take one piece of clothing off it to just wear it. Like, oh, I'll just wear that shirt. Yeah. And then the next day you take another piece off. And at some point you've reduced the mountain to the point where you're like, I'm just going to wear the rest of this pile. Mm -hmm. Or you could just, this, what we do is we just keep the clean clothes in the dryer and we just go shopping. Yeah. It's hard to find matching socks, but, yeah. you know, whatever. Okay, yeah. what else? Uh, here's one. It's sort of a pictorial one from Jennifer. Oh, it's, perfect for radio. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's a diamond. At the top point of the diamond, it says kindness. At the rightmost point of the diamond, it says sports. At the bottom of the diamond, it says secrets. And on the left-hand side, it says gambling. And then in the middle of the diamond, it says booze. <laughs> Did I black out and write this family crest? <laughs> And also, can we hang out later, whoever submitted that? <laughs> that is extremely in my wheelhouse. Pretty good. <laughs> Any other ones? Yeah, here's one from Chris. Chris's family crest, a mountain background, a martini glass foreground, and a beagle in the corner. <laughs> wow. That's, That's like, perfect. That's like you have almost everything in the world you could need. Yeah, what else could you need? This is Livewire Radio. And, of course, we bring in guests from all over the country to be on the show. But... Portland, our hometown, is also full of interesting people doing interesting things, and we like to meet some of those folks on occasion. It's a segment we call New Fascinating Friend. Let's meet one right now. 
co-owner and founder of one of Portland's most celebrated restaurants, which, by the way, is heavily influenced by her family background. Please welcome Chef Bonnie Morales from Kachka to Livewire. Hello. Hi, Bonnie. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I was on the website of the restaurant, and I was just, like, absolutely blown away by the story of Kachka, of the name of the restaurant, and, and why you chose that. Can you just kind of tell us how that came about? Yeah. So my grandmother uh, was a young woman during World War II. And she had to uh, escape a ghetto that um, ultimately everyone, um, the day after she left, was shot in. Um, she was traveling through a, through a forest, getting towards Russia from Belarus, and was stopped along the way by what's known as a starosta, which is like a, a Nazi collaborator um, who was saying, you're a Jew. And her cover story was uh, that she was a Ukrainian peasant, because a little bit of a darker complexion, kind of like more Jewish. And um, he said, oh, yeah, if you're Ukrainian, then how do you say duck uh, in Ukrainian? And in, in Russian, it's utka. Um, and she, obviously, she knows zero Ukrainian and um, hoped that maybe the Yiddish word might be the same. Um, and it turns out that it is, and that word is kachka. So he let her go. So she just guessed? <laughs> yeah, she just, I mean, what else is she going to do? Hail Mary, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And here you are. <laughs> and, and here I am. And yeah, so uh, my husband and I opened Kachka um, to sort of tell the story of how I grew up eating. And, and that's really important to me. So when we were thinking of sort of like a, a keystone word, this sort of made sense. It was like the first thing we thought of. Uh, we're talking to Bonnie Morales, uh, chef and co-founder of Kachka here in Portland, which is commonly shows up on lists of being Portland's best restaurant best Russian food in America. Uh, you've brought a couple things. Uh-huh. Um, Bonnie, what uh, what have you brought? Um, so I brought a couple of classic zakuski, which are sort of the cold uh, dishes that you have with, usually with vodka. It doesn't have to be, though I did bring some khrianavuka, which is horseradish vodka as well. Whoa. Um, yeah. Um, I've always thought vodka was too weak. <laughs> <laughs> but if we could just put some horseradish in there. That's the ticket. You'll really remember it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, with that is sedotka patruba, or herring under a fur coat, which is a really classic layered salad. Uh, what goes into herring under a fur coat? Clearly a fur coat. Uh, okay. No, it's, uh, it's a herring that's been uh, oil cured and then uh, mixed with some dill and onion. And then there's potato, carrot, beet, beet mayonnaise, and some sieved egg, egg whites and yolks. And then um, the others are, are sprats, uh, Baltic sprats, which are a little smoked fish with a little parsley mayo and hard-boiled egg and onion and uh, pumpernickel toast. And um, so my husband, who knows nothing about Russian food, um, he, one of like the first times we all got together with my family, like, uh, I was at my aunt's house was early on and he had a simpler version of that and was just 
enthralled with it, couldn't stop talking about it. It was at my aunt's house, right? And I, I was like, oh yeah, my aunt Asa always makes that. And uh, my mother overhearing this like freaked out. She like almost pushed me aside. I was like, what are you talking about? That's my dish. <laughs> and, uh, what's super funny about that is like, this is actually kind of like saying that you invented peanut butter and jelly or something. It's mm -hmm. like, it's just like a common thing that everyone does with this particular kind of fish. Um, and so I wrote that actually in the cookbook uh, as a little head note. Oh yeah, we should uh, mention, by the way, that you have this incredible cookbook gorgeous. called Kachka, A Return to Russian Cooking which is not only full of useful information, but just beautiful as an artifact. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Thank you. All right, so can we uh, try some of this Please, here? yeah, make sure you pour some uh, little horseradish vodka. In. Okay. So the way you have zakuski is zakusit means to bite after. So you have to have a toast, and then you drink, and then okay. you eat after, right? So okay, cheers. Zazdrovia. Zazdrovia. Okay. Yeah. Whoa. Oh, yeah, that's horseradish. <laughs> We're talking to Chef Bonnie Morales from Kochka here in Portland. You mentioned your husband. Did you guys have this idea for the restaurant together? Did you have to convince him on that? Was it one trip to your aunt's house that convinced him? I mean, he convinced me. So I, I grew up thinking that this food had no place in any sort of professional environment. I was super embarrassed of it, sort of the usual child of immigrants story. Um, and he left that first party that uh, was at my parents' house and just sort of, we were in the driveway still, and he was like, that was amazing. And I realized that maybe my viewpoint was the one that was twisted, um, you know, just, I have my own hangups, right? And um, he didn't have any of that baggage attached. Um, my mom got really excited as we started dating more and more. And he, she realized that she could actually like feed him things. She started like bringing stuff back that she hadn't even made since they left the Soviet Union. So, wow. Yeah, super cool. Um, speaking of the Soviet Union, this is described as Russian food, and yet your ancestors there were actually Belarusian. What constitutes, quote-unquote, Russian food, yeah. really? That's a super interesting and complex question. Um, so, like, I, for I, everyone's got their own viewpoint of that, right? So, right now, I sit here, I can't tell you what my background is, really, because my parents left from a place called the Soviet Union, um, but the place that they left was physically Belarus, but in the entire time that they were there, it was never called Belarus, so they never identified themselves as being from Belarus. Um, they also didn't really identify themselves as Russian because being Jewish in, uh, in the Soviet Union, your passport uh, would say Jewish as your nationality. Wow. Um, and in addition, that the food that they ate, which is therefore what I eat, um, is a big hodgepodge of things that are from all over the former Soviet Union because you would have Baltic, Sprats, for example, which are from Latvia, um, or at the same time, you'd have Hachapuri, which is from Georgia, and all those things were considered to be Soviet, and Soviet kind of equals Russian now. And so looking back, it's really hard to sort of separate it back out. It's not about political boundaries. It's about what people actually eat there, right? right. And then you also don't want to, I don't want to step on anybody's toes because I'm not trying to like associate it with any. I mean, I just want to make delicious food that I grew up eating. So it's loaded, you know, so... I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> what do you make for yourself when you go home after working a long day and you just want something for you? I open up a bag of chips. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bonnie Morales, everybody. Thank the you. restaurant and the cookbook are Kachka.
This is Livewire. Kirkus called our next guest the Poet Laureate of Difficult Families, <laughs> which makes her kind of ideal for this episode. She's the author of six books, including the bestsellers The Middlesteens and All Grown Up. Her latest novel is All This Could Be Yours. Please welcome Jamie Attenberg to Livewire. Hi, Jamie. Welcome to the show. Hi. How's it going? Uh, for people that haven't had a chance to read the book, can you kind of lay out the, the sort of broad strokes of the story? Yeah. So it's set in New Orleans. Um, and in the first couple of pages, Victor Tuckman, who is a bad, rich man, who's bad in all the bad, rich man ways, um, he has a heart attack. And then he's just in a coma for the rest of the book. That's uh, just a lot of wishful thinking here. Just put all the bad men into comas. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, yeah. he's a shady real estate guy from New York. He's got some sex scandals going on. Yeah. I don't know who that reminds me of. Well, unfortunately, like lots of people. So I didn't yeah. really have to pick just one. Um, and he is his own character. But I, about two pages was really all I could spend in his mindset. And then I was really disinterested in his family and, and kind of the, the legacy of this kind of toxic behavior and what happens to them. And and, and how they can work through it generationally and then and, and hopefully move somewhere better in their lives. I have to say that, sadly, even though Victor is, is only kind of conscious for a very short amount of this book, I could identify with a lot of the stuff he was doing. Is that I true? I like gambling. Yeah. I like alcohol. That's, he's only there for two pages, but he lives a real life. Yeah. Loses $1,000 gambling, tries to drink some spoiled scotch. Smokes a cigar. Gets yelled at by the people that live downstairs from him. Right. Yeah. I mean, he really packs a lot into those he's two bad, pages. He's, bad, he's kind of bad news, for sure. And he's bad news throughout the book, too. Yeah, were you tempted to redeem him in some no, way? I mean, I want... I, I mean, I approach all my books with the idea that I'm going to try to be compassionate. I either like my characters at the beginning of the book and then I figure out what their flaws are or I dislike them and then I write my way to understanding them. And I really try to do that with all of my characters, all the time, and with him, I could not do it. I could not figure out a way to redeem him. And I didn't care. I was like, wait, I don't actually have to. Why? And I feel like that's something we do all the time as we turn these kinds of men into antiheroes, yeah. and I don't, I'm over it. I don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. Was that cathartic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I don't know if it's cathartic, but it, was, it felt necessary. I, I read somewhere you said that the characters that kvetch the loudest are the ones that you become interested in right yeah. away? Like, what is, how does that manifest? Are these, like, characters in a book you're working on just in your head making noise, and whichever one is making the most noise is who, the one you gravitate towards? They're the ones that are showing me the world, right? So in this, in this instance, the sixth chapter of the book was the beginning of the book for a really long time, and it was Victor's daughter. I, ha I saw a woman. I heard a woman in my head. And she was sitting on the roof of a hotel. She was visiting a town, and her father was in a coma, and she didn't like her father. And her mother was kind of the keeper of all these secrets. And I knew all of that within two or three paragraphs. I just heard her talking, and she was, her gaze was showing me this universe. And so I and I, was, and I was like, all right, I want to spend time with all these characters. And I knew that I didn't want to just trust her opinion. I wanted to get to know them all. So you get to meet lots of characters in this yeah. book. I'm always interested in this from people who, who write fiction, but it's like these characters, they just sort of reveal themselves to you. It's like they have a life of their own and they're just doing their thing and you're just observing it even though your brain is the one actually creating the stuff. Yeah, I mean, I 
we look, it's very busy in my brain. There's a lot <laughs> going on up here. By the end of a book, I really, you know, I, when I have almost all of a book done, I have lots of characters that I'm like just living with in my head. And then when I finish a book, people always want to know how you know when it's done. And I really just go from character to character and make sure they've said everything they have to say. Mm -hmm. And then, but, and then I'll might maybe add in another chapter and let another character show up. But I do live in harmony with these, with these characters. <laughs> we are, we're together. Yeah. So much of your work is family oriented. What do you think it is about the way that you process fiction or approach writing that makes you particularly adept at writing the family? I'm, I mean, I do find families really interesting. I love hearing other people's family stories. I grew up in a, in a gossipy kind of household where people were always telling stories about each other. I think that um, I, I think that families are really juicy material. I mean, if I, I have written some books where it's about uh, uh, relationships, families of you know friends that you that you choose, but. The fascinating thing about families is you can't choose any of these people, so they've just become really rich territory. It just makes it really easy to write about America, too, because that you can have all different kinds of right. opinions and, and politics and ethics and things like that because everyone's just sort of thrown together in this family. Right, and then they marry somebody and they become a part of the family and they have a wildly different experience, but now that's a part of Thanksgiving too yeah, or right. something like that. And I don't know, and families are just really messed up. Sometimes people ask me why I can't just write about a family that gets along. And I was like, cause that's just like one sentence, like they yeah. all got along and then <laughs> yeah. it's over. Uh, we're talking to Jamie Attenberg. Uh, her new book is All This Could Be Yours. We're talking about family and uh, the matriarch of the family, uh, Barbara is kind of like, the most, in a way, the most victimized by him, but also the most complicit, which is a kind of a really complicated character. Yeah, I was having, I mean, you know, my politics uh, are, they're there. They're like, you know, they're sort of filtering throughout the book, but really the, the book only works if the characters work. I, I am a character-driven writer, but I was very interested in this character of Barbara. I was interested in... Um, Post 2016 election, I was thinking a lot about all the privileged white ladies who voted for our current president, mm -hmm. and I wanted to uh, just for a moment have an understanding of them and spend time with them. And so she was definitely one of the characters where I had to write my way in into understanding her. Um, even though she's there's she's funny, like she's kind of a funny, witty person. So I you know we'll give her some points for that. But yeah, I, I had to. She was com she was complicated. She's a complicit character. Yeah. The crux of this book is really what happens when somebody dies who nobody likes or very few people like. And you still have to grieve them. Right. I was wondering, like, yeah, what is the what's the, the plan for something like that? Because I think it hap that happens more than people admit mm -hmm. in real life. Uh I mean, it's been really interesting to have this book out in the world and to have people say, this, is, this reminds me of a family member, this reminds me of a dad or an uncle or something like that. I mean, I am interested in that idea of how we don't get to control the grief that we have. And, we don't get, and when someone goes, it's like you just kind of have to go through whatever process you have to go through um, to get there. And, uh, and each character kind of experiences it differently. Like Alex, who's the daughter, she really has, she has like a big confrontational scene at his bedside where she's you know, talking through how all the things that she felt like he did, he had, how he had wronged her. And then there's Gary, who's her brother, and he's just sitting in an Airbnb in Los Angeles getting stoned and missing all the flights home. And I feel like that's who I would be, yeah. is like the person who keeps missing the flights home and not wanting to deal with it. But he's still dealing with it in his way. He's still trying to process his feelings in a way. Other than, uh, I guess, being entertained uh, or intrigued, what are you hoping people take away from this book? 
I mean, I just, it, there's so many entry points. There's so many, I just want people to think about it and talk about it. I just want to be a part of the conversation that's going on right now. And I want people to think about their families a little bit more and, and be forgiving where they need to be, but also to kind of call people on their crap when you need to call them on their crap. Because I think that we put up with a lot of stuff and actually it might be really good for everybody if we just say at that Thanksgiving dinner, this is an unacceptable behavior and, and we kind of need to move on. To me, the patriarchy is, is fascinating because it is both fully functional and totally broken at the same time. And, but it's only fully functional for some people and it's really broken for a lot of people. So, I, I mean, this is about claiming it, noticing it, analyzing it, but also just moving the hell on. Uh, we're talking to Jamie Attenberg. This is Livewire Radio. Her new book is All This Could Be Yours. Jamie, uh, you created something called the 1,000 Words of Summer Project, uh, where I guess you send out emails encouraging other writers to write 1,000 words a day for 10 days in the middle of the summer. That's right. This is uh, a great idea. We salute your dedication to word count. <laughs> okay, but we wanted to see how good you are with literature by the numbers uh, with a little exercise that we call... Let's get quizzical. Let's get quizzical, quizzical. I want to get quizzical. Let's see if you know your stuff. Livewire house band, ladies and gentlemen. So, Jamie, these are all questions about word count. And yes, this might be the most public radio game ever. <laughs> Deal with it, America. Wow. Okay. This is nerdy as hell, man. <laughs> Which has the higher word count, the Declaration of Independence or the Wikipedia entry for the restaurant chain Popeyes? I'm going to say Popeyes. You're absolutely right. <laughs> it has 1,427 words, whereas the Declaration of Independence has 1,337 words. Here's the thing. Popeyes was actually trailing the Declaration of Independence before it launched its new chicken sandwich, which added 310 words to the Wikipedia entry. Well and I do believe... One, Elena Passarello had one of those today. Yeah, hours ago. And you didn't even know we were talking about it on the show. Nope. That was just kismet. Was yeah. it your first one? It was my first one. I had one, too. Did you go spicy? I, yeah, I mean, I was in New Orleans, so yeah, we go spicy Yeah, you got to go spicy. Yeah. Oh, you had, oh, you had Popeye's chicken in Louisiana. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yes. I mean, yeah. a real triumph. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how about this? Which has a higher word count? The 1848 translation of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto or the Wikipedia entry for Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. I'm going to go with the manifesto. You're absolutely right. You are good at this game. Do you study word count? Is that part of your thing? Finally a skill that I have. Yes. You're really good at this. The Communist Manifesto has 17,571 words. The uh, Wikipedia entry is a paltry 3,897. I'm actually surprised it's that low. I just feel like you get people going online. Uh, how about this? Which has a higher word count, The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe or the pilot episode of the TV show That's So Raven? <laughs> which was titled Test of Friendship. I think it would be That's So Raven. I think you would be so right, Jamie. That is so Jamie. The That's So Raven pilot episode, Test of Friendship, has 2,427 words in it. The Raven, on the other hand, is 1,091 words. The Baltimore Ravens football team is named for the poem. 
The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, Baltimore resident. How about this one? Which has a higher word count, Jamie Attenberg? The original 19th century lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner or Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven? I think the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, you're so, this is very close. It's actually Stairway to Heaven if you count ooze, <laughs> which there are almost none of in the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> It's not, ooh, say, can you see? Nope, turns out it's not. <laughs> this, though, is actually the wildest detail from this question. Uh, Robert Plant, of course, famously of Led Zeppelin, once gave $10,000 to listener-supported radio station KBOO here in Portland, Oregon, during a pledge drive. They've, they've been living off that $10,000 for the last <laughs> 15 years. This really happened. Uh, the disc jockey on KBOO was asking for donations and promising if people donated that they would never play Stairway to Heaven again. <laughs> Robert Plant was in a rental car driving to the Oregon coast. He's flipping the station. He hears KBOO promising to never play Stairway to Heaven again. And he loved it so much, he called in and donated $10,000. <laughs> I guess I would just say, Mick Jagger, if you're listening, we'll never play uh, Tumbling Dice. I mean, we're happy to never play any song for right. $10,000. Yeah. Jamie, you did very well at that quiz. That's amazing. Um, you really know your word counts. Nice job. And great job on the book, too. It's called All This Could Be Yours. It's by Jamie Attenberg. Thank you so much. This is Livewire Radio. We got to take a very quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, special thanks this episode to Heidi Sobel of Portland, Oregon. Heidi is part of the Livewire member community, and she generously supports our show with a donation each month. We're very thankful for that support from Heidi because it is genuinely what allows us to keep doing the show week in and week out. So a big thanks to Heidi Sobel of Portland. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Our musical guests this hour are a seven-person ensemble conceived as a way of channeling the vibe of 60s and 70s European film soundtracks, particularly from Italy. We're talking spaghetti westerns. Their fifth album, No Justice, is out now. I have been listening to them obsessively since I found out about them a few months ago. Please welcome Federale to Livewire.
Federale. Right here on Livewire, their latest album, No Justice, is out now. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. Thanks to our guests, Jamie Attenberg, James Kim, Bonnie Morales, and Federale. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing manager. Our producer and editor is Melanie Savchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Tony Passarello of Sandy Springs, Georgia, and Lisa Brown of Gladstone, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.